Welcome to Fight for Brilliance, a podcast where mental health, philosophy, and our stories inspire your life of brilliance. Welcome to this episode here on the Fight for Brilliance podcast. I'm Justin Keller, your host, and today's conversation is with Dr. Aliza Pressman. I first came across her on social media and her podcast called Raising Good Humans, and this is a phenomenal resource for parenting. I have probably shared her content many, many times on social media, and she remains to this day one of my favorite voices in this space. She just has a way of breaking down evidence-based research into information and tips and strategies for parenting that are just really, really practical. And you're going to enjoy this conversation with her today. Now, Dr. Aliza, she received her PhD in developmental psychology from Columbia University Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She is certified in parent management training from the Yale Parenting Center and a clinical instructor at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She is also the co-founder of the Seedlings Group, a New York City and Los Angeles parent education group where they use evidence-based research and information to educate and guide families about their developing children. Now, just a little backstory on this episode. I recorded this with her, uh, would have been at least two years ago here now, right around the two-year mark, and the plan was I was going to take a break from the podcast for three to six months, and then this was going to be the episode that I relaunched the podcast with, and long story short, that three to six-month break turned into almost two years, and it kind of slipped my mind that this podcast episode had never went live yet, and so as I was going through uh, the programming for the upcoming episodes this year, I realized this one was still an episode that you have not heard, and it is a fantastic conversation. She was so gracious to even be on the show, and so I want to honor her time and her investment into the podcast here by going live with this episode, even if it is a couple years after we recorded it. The content is still relevant, and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation, especially for you parents out there. And even if you're not a parent, I will say that these are conversations and there's some things we talk about inside of this episode that are relevant if you're thinking about having a family someday. These are things that I wished I would have heard and talked about and thought about before becoming a parent. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Aliza Pressman. I have been looking forward to this. Those who are connected with me on social media and with the show, they know just how much I talk about parenting and just how important I feel that the role that we have as parents is. And so this is one that I've been really looking forward to. And I just kind of want to get it started out by asking you something from an expert standpoint. I always feel like they're expected to have all of the answers. They're expected to just know exactly what to do. But for you as a developmental psychologist, what has surprised you about actually raising your own two kids? You have two kids 
versus what you've learned about kids in training or even working with clients, what surprised you? I mean, now this is going to sound really obvious, but earlier on in having kids, because I went to graduate school before I had kids, um, that human beings are not just data points. <laughs> so there's a lot of factors that go into individual differences that I was not prepared for probably. In some ways, I mean, that's the most obvious thing in the world, but when you're like steeped in research and and not thinking about your individual experience or reality, it's just much easier to pretend that you have any control over anybody. Well, yeah. And I feel like that even goes into when you're sitting at a restaurant and you see a kid screaming before you have kids, you're like, or you see them on an iPad, maybe let's say, and you're like, I will never let them look at a screen at dinner. <laughs> and then you have your kids and you're like, I really want to eat in peace, some peace tonight. So here's the tea, here's the phone, here's the iPad, right? Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who was above that stopped being above that during the pandemic. No kidding. Um, for you, I guess one of those things, when you look at like, you talk about data and you talk about uh, just even development, you know, you're supposed to kind of have an idea of what to expect with development of kids. And uh, our son is, he had developmental delays. And so it was so frustrating as a, as a parent to go into it feeling like, okay, everyone has already planned out where he's supposed to be at all these different points. And he'll get there and he's getting there with all of them, just not on that, you know, predictable timeline. What would you say to parents as far as, I guess, helping your kids move along at the pace that they're supposed to, like, when should we pay attention to some of those predictable milestones versus following their pace? How do you navigate that? Well, the first thing is that, and maybe this is a little, maybe this is bit, a bigger answer than you were looking for, but in general, I think this whole field and adjacent fields are getting more flexible about defining certain milestones and certain expectations and looking at children less with sort of a disordered or deficit model and more like people unfold at different rates. And so maybe it's atypical, but not mm -hmm. problematic. And so one of the ways is just the re the, the, the way we view how kids develop and the way we view delays and just changing our own definition. And then the other thing is just to know you want kids to progress. The pace at which they progress is not as important as the mm. fact that they're progressing. The, the red flags are if they're not progressing. And so each kid is going to have their individual differences and kids who have delays, which I, I don't have a better word for it yet, but I hope somebody comes up with one. But when kids have delays, you just want to make sure they're progressing. And so just getting out of the prioritizing the, the race of it all, I think, is the, the best way to let go of some of that tension. And then you're looking at your child for who they are instead of how they fit in the grand scheme of how children develop. How would you define like the role of a parent? Because it feels like sometimes there's so many different roles that we have and different times we have to play these different roles. So how would you actually define, you know, not Webster's version, but define the role of a parent? Well, I think of us as the, the hmm. gardeners and we're, you know, becoming experts 
of the we're we're experts on the particular flower that we're growing or plant that we're growing, in that we can sort of as we're getting to know our children, understand the right mix of sunlight, water, and soil, and they all need it, but how much and when and all of those things will depend on how that particular plant or flower is growing. But we need to provide it and we need to figure out what the right balance is. And that's our role. But I don't think that, you know, you wouldn't try to accelerate the growth of a a beautiful flower. You would just know that there's certain things that you need to do to make sure that it's thriving, that the environment that you're setting up is an environment where they can be their best selves and you're not trying to turn them into another kind of plant. Um, and that's our entire role, which, which means the warmth and the nurturance and the boundaries and the limits and the expectations are all there, but they're going to be different for each child and each family. We know what's right for you also and the kind of person that you are as a parent. You can't really pretend to be someone else. Like, would it be better at a home cook each meal and can carve each toy with, you know, your own, <laughs> your own way? I'm sure it would be. Um, in some ways, but in other ways, if I did that, well, then my I would be so outside of my element and uncomfortable yeah. that I probably wouldn't be an authentic mother. So part of our job is also figuring out what works for us as parents. And so it's really about the fit. It's never really about the child or the parent separately. It's just kind of what's called the dyad in the science of it, but just like the team. Because you talk about carving our own toys. I, this summer, I was trying to get all... I guess, expand what we're doing (laughs) together. And so I was like, let's grab sticks and then let's actually make our own bow and arrow. And I ended up like slicing into my my thumb. And and then, so we're not going to carve our own toys over here on this end. (laughs) So uh, speaking, so when we're talking about, I want to go back kind of to something that we were kind of hitting on and you're talking about just like the nurturing of of our, our children, observing just like when you talk about plants, some need more sunlight and some need less. And when do you really, uh, I guess, what's the balance of pushing kids and helping them move toward things versus like just letting them move at their own pace, find their own things that they love. And what's the balance there for us to kind of be aware of and where do we need to step in and say like, no, you need to sign up. You need to be in soccer for at least try it and, what does that look like? Well, I think some of it is a luxury, right? Like if you have the luxury of being able mm. to provide trying different sports and activities and extracurricular, expose your children to things, let them try it before they reject it. And then, um, you know, think about what's important to you as a parent. Like I, I can give an example of what a crappy athlete I was and how I just desperately, like I went to college, all my friends were athletes and I was just like, I can't even hang out with them and do their, like the way they move in the world and it's to play. They play all the time. They're still to this day in our middle age, like vacations are play for them. And I'm not, a, I'm like reading. And um, so I, I made the decision that I don't even care who my kids are, but they're going to know how to play certain sports. <laughs> just socially. Like I just want them to be old and play tennis with friends or something, but I needed, you know, so I, um, I think we all are entitled as family members, just like growing our families to say, what 
do I really just want as a non-negotiable? Because it's just something that I, you know, I wish for them. And then if they're, you know, they don't have to be competitive athletes. They don't have to be superstars, but just the competencies that you're offering, that's a gift and a privilege. If it doesn't work out, fine. But you can always force physical activity because they need an hour a day, no matter what, just to grow properly. So if you want to find something that's comfortable for them, great. But for some kids, they don't want to move at all. And you need to just say like, this is part of your sunlight, sunlight, water and soil is movement. So pick the, you know, the best of the worst choices. Is it soccer? Is it tennis? Is it running? Is it walking? Is it whatever it is? Um, you're doing it. So the balance is probably figuring out what's super important to you, even if it's not important to your kid, that's allowed. It's not, you know, they don't have to, again, compete, but it might be that you just give yourself permission to have one thing that you're imposing on them. And then the rest, you don't want to have more than one thing just because too much sort of sends a message like you as you are, are not enough. I need to build like a better, stronger, faster. But a little bit of that is okay. And then more mm -hmm. just look what they're excited about. See where they light up and provide more opportunities for that. Now, if where they light up is sitting and watching video games, yeah. then you have to limit it. <laughs> um, but you can also work within that, you know, like, okay, so they're interested mm -hmm. in that. Well, then they can do coding. So I think there's ways to take their interests and grow them without letting them drive the entire bus because they are a kid still. Is there some stage in the development of the child where they are able to actually process and know what they want, like clearly versus, okay, a six-year-old, my son, if I say, we let's go outside and we're going to go see friends. I don't want to see friends. Well, he hasn't been social. He's been sitting on the couch all day. Let's get out and do this. Like, does he actually know like, yes, he doesn't want that and we need to listen to that? Or is there a point at where it's like, okay, no, this is what we're doing. Is there an age where that ends and it's like, no, they know what they want. They're making that decision. We need to like honor that. It depends on the kid because there are some kids who, and there are some adults like this, where their comfort zone might be sitting on the couch and not seeing people, but they need the fuel of social interactions and you may need to force it. But what kind of social interaction maybe they can contribute to in the same same thing with getting daily exercise it's not there that they're driving the whole show yeah. and saying i'm not seeing people i'm not exercising i'm not you know they have to do all those things that are healthy for their growth but the way it looks may be different so maybe they don't they can help decide who's going to be on the play date or is it a big group or a small group um so i think it's just helping them define within certain categories of have to's what they want to do. They also can do things they don't want to do. And that's important to learn too, that, that sometimes you just have to do things you don't want to do. You might not like it and you might feel like you, as a parent, you might think, yeah. well, they're so clearly not interested in this or, in, you know, wanting to do this. Why push them? But it is also important to push them a little bit to see that they can do things they don't want to do, like math homework. You know, part of this is our own memories of childhood. Like, what did I get dragged to that I didn't want to do? But, you know, they were experiences and memories. And they and they tell you, like, 
you're capable of doing something you don't want to do. You don't want to do it and you can't wait to be an adult and say like, I'm never doing that again, but you're capable. And, and our belief in our children's capacity to do some things that are just like, ah, such a drag, whether it's the dishes or the math yeah. homework or whatever. I mean, you can also make things fun. So I'm not advocating <laughs> just being like, well, you're doing it anyway. But in general, you can stretch kids a little bit so that they learn that they can stretch themselves. It leads me toward this idea of what's the relevancy to, or I guess importance maybe of how we were parented to either maybe help us even be better parents instead of, because sometimes it might've been a bad upbringing, it might've been a great one. Both could present an opportunity for us to despise it. So how does how we were parenting, we were parented help us maybe parent better if we look back and actually examine that and open that up? Oh, I mean, how we were parented, whether it was a good experience or not a good experience mm -hmm. or somewhere in between is a huge part of the, our own children's development, whether we, whether we wanted to be or not. So examining it so important and associated with positive relationships with your kids. So what you can do is sort of assess, like have a look at how you were parented and figure out what are your triggers? What are the things that you loved about it, resented about it? What did, what were the whole, like the missing spots, if there were any that you just feel like, wow, I'm going to be aware of that so that I can have my intentions shift a little bit in my parenting or you might recognize like hey i didn't have parents who listened when i was upset i really want to make an effort to to go against my natural tendency not to listen when my child is upset so that i don't you know relive that cycle or on the flip side i don't want to put too much into my child's day-to-day -day emotional experiences that I don't allow for the normal wear and tear of just being a person because nobody listened to me. So you could go either way. And, you know, if you analyze it and think about it and come to terms with it, it's much easier to say, you know what, here's the balanced approach. I want to be there for my child. I want to see and hear and feel their, their experience with them. And then I want to be able to say, I'm going to be compassionate right now but I'm not going to identify with your experience. I'm going to just be your rock. And I don't think that's possible without coming to terms with how you experienced being felt, feeling felt when you were a kid. So it's some, some balance, which is my answer to everything, which is not as fun and it doesn't make for good headlines or book titles, but, but it really is like, coming to terms with your experience and pulling from it what you want and then recognizing if there are things you don't want, not overcompensating on either side. You're better off actually being putting some effort into understanding that early on. For sure. I mean, in a dream world, you, you know, when you decide to have a family, you mm -hmm. think about what does family mean for me? What is my mission statement? What is our mission statement as a family? Like, what are the core values that I hope to impart? And it keeps you with an eye on some kind of goal that may be a little bit more in like intentional and in tune, like in tune with what you were hoping for and what was not working or working when you were a kid is such a huge part of that. So yeah, exactly. And 
it's happening anyway. If it's in your subconscious, it's just that you can't do much about it. If you, if you, there's a, actually a beautiful book by it Dan is, Siegel yeah. called, I think it's called Parenting from the Inside Out, but he talks through all of that. And it really, it, it is, it matters. Uh, there's a lot of beautiful research on the, the powerful work of um, just thinking through how you were parented. That's all. You just have to be aware of it. I love, first of all, the the foundation of going into parenting with at least a, 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 a just like a starting point at least because everyone kind of defaults to the you're never ready. So it almost sounds like this lackadaisical thing that you just approach without any intention. But the, what you just presented is this idea of why don't you prepare yourself as a human a little bit before bringing them into the world. But a question for you, I guess, that I, I think a lot about is Parents worry about like, okay, if, if, if he doesn't succeed in this or if, or if we go through a divorce or if we move too many times, will this mess him up? And so can you speak to that, that mentality of like messing our kids up? <laughs> I mean, first of all, of course, that's, a, those are, I had all of those feelings. I have them all the, I mean, I have them all the time. I think I have some protection mm. in that I get comfort in research so I will say this, of course, in there are the ideal circumstances for kids that give them an environment in which they can thrive. And so one of those is definitely not divorce and moving a lot. I've done divorce and moving a lot. Um, and, and so what I would say is the more important components to resilience the system of resilience whether it's your children's resilience or the environment that they're set up that the the resilience of the environment that they're in or any of those things is really dependent on things that are much more simple than creating a perfect world for them it's really the fundamentals of having a sensitive and warm caregiver just takes one who is mm -hmm. able to give appropriate boundaries along with support. And everything else is uh, a lot of gravy, but you need just that for an incredible setup for your kids to have a lot more of a buffer for the bad stuff that happens than you could possibly imagine. And so once you have that and you understand that all the other stuff we are clinging to because it feels like, okay, I've made a perfect house. I have a perfect family. Like everything is going well. So of course my kid's going to have a perfect mm -hmm. life and all's going to, you know, that stuff is our fantasy, but it doesn't mm -hmm. actually have make a huge difference for kids. What matters is that foundation. So if you're thinking of the foundation of a house, you need the foundation, you need the house and the roof and the structure, but you absolutely know that I live in Southern California now where there are earthquakes and I just moved and you can retrofit a house, you can make sure it's steady later, but it's much easier when the house has a strong foundation when there's bad stuff going on. And if a house mm -hmm. doesn't, then it's not so safe to be in a place with earthquakes. And when you think about divorce and moving a lot and all of those things, those are disruptions that could be just minor little earthquakes. If you have a strong, sturdy foundation, they really don't have much of an impact. If you don't, 
things will fall apart and it's terrible for kids. So that's why it's just important to keep in mind. For me, the 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 earthquake thing is very clear mm -hmm. because you really could have two different houses and one doesn't even notice that there was any shaking and one completely collapses. And so focusing on the things that we can do to support our kids, despite the fact that the world is going to hit them with a lot of stuff is much more um, useful. <laughs> and also it's just emotionally more realistic because you can't force a perfect life and you can't predict everything and things are uncertain. And that is okay if you have a steady foundation. Is it even true if you have a home where they're together still and even if just one of those parents is showing up well for that kid, like you're saying, even that's enough. Yes. It's a kind of crazy, beautiful part of the developmental literature, which is the power of one strong, even not like if, if unfortunately, if it's not a parent, sometimes it's a grandparent or kin or mm. a teacher, but whomever it is, it takes one. The rest is wonderful. And certainly no one, no one is losing by having more people in their lives who they have close relationships with, with that kind of support. But there is incredible research that in terms of resilience, in terms of buffering the effects of stress, it takes one. It's, it was liberating for me too. when I realized like my son is actually better for the different people in his life that he, he can't. And doesn't need it all for me, you know, whether that's teachers or, or whatnot. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to bring up something that uh, is interesting for me because I grew up, I was always in trouble. And so all I know is getting my, you know, rear end just, you know, it wasn't the hand, it was always a, like a wooden spoon or stick. Right. But and again, I'm 41 years old. So this is before parents would get reported for, for, for that kind of discipline. Now, I didn't want to revert to that, obviously, with, with my son. I, that made me feel a certain way and didn't probably help my behavior either. I realized that. But there's, there's times, too, with, that I think about growing up. It was I was always wrong and my parents were always right. Is a, is a, it's something I've had to like work through right, and think about and be aware of. So with my son... I wonder about my son, all parents, this idea of, I guess, authority versus like showing humility and making things right with them, being able to apologize. Is, is that a healthy position to have where you have a relationship where you show up flawed? I mean, do you need to be worried about losing the, I guess, the, the hierarchy that you have in, a, in the home? I mean, what, is, what does that look like? I mean, you want to know that your parent has their act together. So of course you're going to be wrong sometimes. You wouldn't be a human mm -hmm. being and it's important to show your kids you're not perfect so that they don't think that their goal is to be perfect. And it's important to make mistakes in front of your kids so that they understand that mistakes happen and they can see how you deal with them. And hopefully you deal with them by saying, eeks, I made a mistake. I need to correct this mistake. And here's what I learned from it. How exciting. I learned something new. And so that, so, so I think that, of course, you're not going to be always right. And the adults always win. On the other hand, you have to be stable enough to say, I'm, you know, 
mostly trustworthy to stick to my guns and to make pretty good choices for you. I'm open-minded in case I was wrong. Um, and that will happen, but I'm not going to fall apart. Like if you have a parent who's constantly like owning up to mistakes and every day is just a, like, you know, they're a hot mess, that would be a problem. Cause you do want to think like, okay, my parent has their act together and I don't need to take care of them. But apart from that, I think it's great to be able to say, hmm, you know what? I really like hearing your perspective and I'm going to think about it. You could still come back to them and say, I thought about it. I'm still feeling like my choice is a better choice for you, but I appreciate that you had the courage to tell me what you think. And then, you know, they won't have the same, you know, you don't need to, to butt heads quite as much. Um, and I, and it doesn't work. I mean, you're living proof of that, but that doesn't get nobody being told that you have to respect adults and they are always right does not make you respect adults and believe they're always right. It just makes you hide whatever it is that you're doing. I love this conversation with you. And there's, there's so many different things we could talk about. I also know that you've talked a lot about certain topics. Um, and I want people to listen to your podcast. It's one of my favorites and, uh, you're just a great follow too on, on social media. But I want to talk about is something I'm sure you've talked about, but I haven't heard a lot about and it would be around the area of social media and uh, and I want to try to attack this from a few different lanes one would be uh, you know I think there is a blessing in it where you have a good community of people that you can are parenting to and you can see what they're doing but what cautions would you have I guess for parents on social media with either seeking advice um, posting their thoughts about parenting and even posting things about their kids as they're as they're coming up. What are your, if we just unpack that a little bit and talk social media and parenting? Yes. Well, I'll tell you one thing that's a huge pet peeve of mine, and I hope people call me out on it when I do it because I have such a complicated relationship with social media and parenting. Um, because I also don't want to add to parents' feeling of guilt or shame or if you know they're doing it wrong and i don't like the finger wagging of yeah. a lot of the social media parenting stuff um you know do this not that um on the other hand it can be really helpful sometimes um but it's not very there's no it's not like peer-reviewed so you don't know <laughs> if you're getting accurate science or accurate information and people say crazy stuff with a lot of authority. And, um, and so that part of social media freaks me out. And so does it's very against, um, the, the whole field of developmental psychology is so meticulous about language, but you can't be when you're trying to do something in, in like a quick sound bite. Because of course there's like 8,000 caveats and it's not, you know, there's, there's just like slivers of a pie of information, but this whole other picture. So I think when you look at social media, you have to imagine who is the information coming from? What is their spin and approach? Do I feel good about myself or bad about myself after I look at it? Does it feel like, oh, okay, this is good to help me out in a pickle? Or is it like, uh, this is another thing that's making me feel like a piece of crap. <laughs> like, so that's really important 
um, just like noticing how your nervous system feels or how your body reacts to seeing something and then stop paying attention to me as well if it's making you feel bad. And the other thing is to recognize that the interpretation of science in social media is can get really inaccurate because sometimes it's mm. like you're getting your message for you're not even getting the original message from a primary source you're getting it from someone else's interpretation and then it sort of turns into a misunderstanding like attachment parenting would be a great example of that just a complete mess of um, and misuse of the science of attachment and they're completely unrelated but this the 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 idea of it has really been powerful on social media. Um, so I guess looking at a lens of like, who's this coming from and what's their approach? If it's making me laugh or it's just fun to feel connected with another parent who's saying stuff, great. If it's something that's giving you an approach that's not taking into account your cultural background or your family's structure or the fact that you're divorced or the fact that you come from parents who are immigrants and have really loud voices and you're told to speak in a really gentle, calm way. And that just doesn't make sense. Like take into account all of that. And then mm -hmm. I think in terms of putting stuff about kids out there, you just need to ask your kids permission because it's not fair to put your child's, I mean, maybe baby toddler, but when you have a six-year-old, for example, it's time to say, mm. hey, I love this story about you or this picture about you. How do you feel about me sharing this with friends? Otherwise, it it's so invasive and you don't even realize it. Um, and same, this sounds goofy, but when social media becomes about your child's accomplishments, there is a message in there that the forward-facing um, the thing that you want out there in the world to your friends is about the accomplishments. And there is something about that that indicates that your love is somehow connected mm. to the splendor of your child's accomplishments versus just because of who they are. And I'm not saying not to celebrate them. For some kids, they're like, celebrate me, like brag about me. I'm so proud of this goal that I kicked. <laughs> no idea. I just said to my daughter the other day, I was like, when is your audition for tennis team or something? She was like, it's not an audition. <laughs> um, when's rehearsal? But um, anyway, so so I think that's the other part of social media is just making sure that whatever whatever you're saying about your child, they know and that that message is aligned with your general values, which is not something we think about so much. It's funny you mentioned like he's six now, maybe even asking him the idea of that. It was like, this was the first, so I spent July, most of July with him. Right. And so during that month, I just, I decided to turn off social media, like not going to post not going to share what we go and do. Like this is for me and him. And oh my God, like it was the best time that I've, I can remember with him. And I also got out of that and I'm like, wait, my raising of my son is really it it needs to be first and always for me and him. And there's something about the added extra layer of using our kids for unnecessary content. And that's what there's a lot of. And especially when you're talking about always the highs and here's the wins. And so I'm, I'm so glad you touched on all of that. When you think about the impact that you have through your work, 
through your parenting, just the life that you live, uh, what do you hope that the story is that's told of you, whether that's from your kids now, from colleagues, from clients, maybe later in life, what do you hope that the story is that they tell of you? Probably the story that I would want for my kids to tell and my clients and anybody who who I've maybe impacted is that I was there and that I am curious and and care deeply and I hope I can be of help that's about it <laughs> maybe it sent me like maybe it would be nice with my kids if they would also say I was fun or funny or you know something that I don't think adults would, I don't think I'm like a great cocktail party conversation, <laughs> but I think for my kids, I hope that they would also allow, like, look back and think of just like, you know, maybe a little embarrassing and fun. Well, I appreciate you making the time to just share. I know you have so much knowledge and, and just a base of understanding in this area. And so I appreciate you taking the time to chat here today and be a part of the conversation here. Thank you for having me and for being interested in this conversation. Well, if you enjoyed this conversation, you will definitely want to make sure you follow her on social media. The handle is at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And you can also find her podcast wherever you listen to yours, which again, the podcast is Raising Good Humans. And it's an incredible resource. You're going to get a lot just from following her on social media alone. And so if you would share this episode um, and even mention her, put a special thank you in there. I feel so bad it took so long for this episode to get live. So it meant a lot that she was a part of this. And if you want to stay connected with me, you can do that also on social media using the handle at Keller Thinks across all platforms. If you have not liked or subscribed to the podcast, be sure to click that like, follow or subscribe button. And if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts and a rating, uh, it's greatly appreciated. I appreciate everybody who's already done that. Until next time, I just want to leave you with the weekly challenge, which is this. Choose to fight for brilliance in every area of your life. <laughs> <laughs>